Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. One of the things that's emerging from this show more than anything else is that America is increasingly becoming an aristocracy of labor, an aristocracy of intelligence. We have conversations with the British author David Goodhart uh, uh, coming up and Michael Sandel about this new aristocracy. And of course, at the other end of the aristocracy is the, the underclass, uh, Kerry Arsenault's uh, new book, Milltown, which we're also going to talk about in the next few weeks, focuses on this. These are, of course, all nonfiction books. But what, what mm-hmm. is, a, what is a, a fiction writer supposed to do in this new American aristocracy of intelligence in which labor is dominated by brain power and the underclass increasingly is at best marginalized and and in reality essentially alienated from life. Uh, Vanessa Veselka has a new book out. She's a fiction writer. Her first book was a big success. This is her second novel, The Great Offshore Grounds. And in many ways, in my reading of it at least, it's, it's, it's a book, it's a, it's a piece of fiction uh, and, and indeed social commentary about this vast gulf in American life between the intelligent aristocracy and the rest of America. Vanessa, am I vulgarizing your book? No, you're not vulgarizing it at all. I think that it is meant to be a commentary and also to show that gap. Um, you know, the characters are very much uh, in an America that I think most people experience, but that doesn't show up a lot of times in uh, in lit or art uh, in quite the same way. So that was part of the project of the book. Your background, you've done a lot of different things in, in your life. You, you've been a, a labor organizer, and, and, and there's a lot of commentary, explicit and implicit in the book, about labor, about how to extract value from the self both in economic and in cultural terms. What did you learn as a labor organizer about the, the art of fiction? Well, as a labor organizer, um, it was part of a continuation of learning about people in general because I met and worked with people very deeply for long periods of time from very different backgrounds. So, you know, that is one of the things I learned. But one of the other things I learned was all the ways that people... Um, sell their labor because uh, their better instincts are being held hostage. I worked with healthcare workers primarily. I helped organize hospitals, and now I'm actually working again in labor and uh, working with nursing home workers in a time of COVID, right? So, you know, the remarkable uh, emotional labor and physical labor uh, that is brought to bear by these workers, which are largely women and people of color, um, you know, is, it's a really they have their love of caring for others, their love and sense of devotion to elderly or to sick people or to the vulnerable held against them. If you walk out, if you ask for what you need, if you take care of your own family, you're going to be hurting 
it's such a hostage taking. You're going to be hurting this person that you care the most about. And so they end up in this bind. Um, and I feel like these characters are in a bind to each other where they're trying the things they don't tell each other that are going on in their lives is because they're trying to save each other harm for limited resources for all of those things. Yeah, in a sense, what I glean from your book is that the socioeconomic and the cultural conditions of this underclass are so confusing, it's very hard for them to grasp their reality. The traditional 19th century book about the exploitation of labor, which was, of course, very influenced by Marx and by socialists, whether it's Zola's work or, or Dickens or, or so many other traditional 19th century uh, fiction writers, novelists, they were all able to sort of articulate the struggle of labor and the injustice of capitalism. But today, it's, it's a much trickier business, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a comment in the book about, you know, independent contractors, you know, that there'll be a mass grave <laughs> the size of a you know, football field filled with independent contractors, you know, and I think that that, that sense of the, the personality, um, you know, uh, being niche marketed to through algorithm or through, you know, just basic consumer interaction uh, that sense of branding, those ways in which capitalism is deeply, you know, uh, stamped onto the American psyche also play uh, against building collective power or building other things. And so they are a little bit lost in how they fit into the system. They don't have a really clear, like, this person is oppressing me. It's more of a general diffuse system that they just aren't a part of. Is the book, in some senses, designed as a as a wake up call? Your your novel, The Great Offshore Grounds, is it designed as a wake up call for this precariat? Because for the most part, I'm guessing they're they're too busy driving their Uber cars and caring for the sick uh, on the front lines of COVID to even have time to read it. Yeah, I think that that's probably true, and I think that you know it's this question uh, is that we don't always get to choose who those that we write about or for aren't always those who have time to read and take in that work. And, uh, you know, I, I'm aware of that, but I think that it's still a worthwhile project to try to describe what you see and to try to bring more humanity to things that get passed over and turned into ambiance or turned into sort of like background character uh, I, I think there's a remarkable lack of agency offered to poor people in novels sometimes and uh, in a sort of a do-gooder's desire to make it always with how the other half lives. Um, and I think that the thing I wanted to celebrate in this was the incredible resilience and ingenuity of these characters, that they were still primarily convinced with finding their own sense of freedom in some ways, um, but not blind to what was a fetter for them but not ideological. There's not a lot of race in the book, but there is a, a ton of gender. All, all your characters or your key characters are female. And the one, my guess anyway, the, the one kind of interesting male character or vaguely sympathetic male character also has a, a female quality, whereas the one bad guy is, uh, is of course, a man who, who lacks all empathy. Uh, what's, the, what, what's the gender perspective here, um, Vanessa? Well, I certainly didn't, wasn't, I mean, I was not trying to paint Cyril, the, char the character you're talking about, uh, as 
standing in for a sort of male lack of empathy at all. He is appalling, though. I mean, he really oh, he's made appalling. Me, because, because of his sort of cult of the heart, because of his dishonesty. Yes. But he's also only in there very briefly. And sort of the way that I envisioned him in the novel was sort of the jerk who throws the golden apple between the three women and, you know, uh, between Paris and everybody, you know, it sets off the... Uh, he's but he's the essential. He's, the, he's essential. He's the anchor of the narrative in, in well, terms he, of the story. I mean, th there wouldn't be a book without him. Right. But his role in it ends in the first few pages. I think that he is there as uh, he's so tied to class that I think of him more in terms of class than okay. in terms of maleness by far. Um, so I wasn't in any way. I think there are a lot of male characters. They're just not as central mm. um, that are, you know, strong and masculine uh, in more traditional ways in the book. So the gender the gender analysis in the book has a little more to do with things like what happens for promiscuity, what happens for the ability to, you know, how are, are women treated differently in their sort of in their um, attempts at freedom and and what kind of cost do they have to bear between, you know, the poles of death or freedom or the poles of like uh, what it means to be itinerant um, and not. Own. I mean, I wrote a piece that was nonfiction a long time ago uh, about, you know, I spent about 15, I hitchhiked 15,000 miles in the U.S. when I was a teenager and another 5,000 in Turkey and Yugoslavia before the war and around and um, all without any money and a pretty sketchy time in my life. And some of that is depicted in the novel and a lot of my experience uh, comes out of out of that time in that way. And one of the things I wrote about it, which is a gendered analysis, is, you know, a man on the, a man on the road is solitary, a woman on the road is alone. We assume there's something wrong with her. And so, you know, that she's been shunned or she's been hurt or she's been, you know, that we don't offer the same agency or desire for freedom or the sense of exploration to the person we see on the road like that. And, um, and so that was in mind as well as a gender critique when I was writing the novel, particularly in the character of Cheyenne. There's a particular resilience about a lot of the female characters in the book, though. Is that a, a gendered thing or is it just coincidental? I think it's coincidental. So it just happens that you chose resilient women. There are lots of women who aren't resilient. Well, I, would, I chose resilient people and resilience is part of why I chose them at all. And because I am talking about class, because I am talking about, um, what, you know, ambitions that are not typical American ambitions, um, but ambitions of, of honesty to the self in a lot of ways. And the resilience is necessary because of the way, the position they have in society. And it's necessary um, to protect their relationships to each other and it's necessary to their capacity to have an honest conversation with themselves. I get the sense that there's a, a degree of, of anger, perhaps controlled anger behind this book. You're clearly not happy with the current state of America. Do you think that fiction writers have a responsibility like you to write polemical work? I don't think they have a responsibility. I think that people bring different things to the table. I think and know for myself uh, that I don't set out to say, oh, I'm going to write about this particular aspect of politics, but that I've never been able to take 
my own questions about America, my own questions about what is the thing to do, my own questions that I, you know, I focus, I write because I'm trying to answer things I cannot answer. And in this book, part of what I was trying to figure out was, you know, what can I love about this country? What can I not extricate myself from? What do I have to come to terms with? And if there is no answer, which there really isn't for me, um, meaning like I, I don't come down on an easy place, how do, how do I experience that? How do I try to figure that out? David Goodhart write, writes about the big distinction in the world today is between the somewheres and anywheres, the somewheres who are stuck somewhere, and they're the underclass, the anywheres of the global elite. Uh, but your book is about movement and travel. Your book is about uh, an underclass that are, is also an anywhere class. Uh, and there isn't a lot of kind of rooting to place in the way in which much of the underclass is rooted to place. Is that fair? I think that is fair. And I think that there's, you know, there's many uh, aspects to what the lived experience of an underclass is with these characters. They have been moving apartments and, you know, running very, very carefully running to how many eviction notices you can get to how many bills you can be behind. You know, they're used to being in constant motion from their youngest, youngest periods. And so that sense of place is very different. It's, it's, it's connecting them to each other, but it is not an actual home in that sense. And, and that mobility continues through all three children that started with the mother character. One of the other things that I found very interesting about your book is that people like Sandel and, and Goodhart remind us that American life now is like going to the casino. It's a lottery. It really depends on what family you're born into. If you're born into the upper class, then you're pretty much guaranteed a decent life. If you're not, then you're pretty much guaranteed a life of the underclass of the precariat. Your fictional narrative revolves around a kind of lottery of two women who at the same time happen to have uh, parallel daughters. Uh, what do you think as a, as a fictional writer, the, the role of, 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 of the lottery is, not only in, in, in the craft of fiction, but in the nature of American life? I thought about that a lot with this book, because as I said uh, in the beginning, that sense of like, I want to throw the golden apple on the table that says for the fairest and see who thinks that fits them it was this sense that these characters are sort of thrown out on the world. The 19th century uh, deceits, you know, <laughs> well, deceits is perhaps a better way you can see, uh, is, is around this, those questions of status and, and parentage, the unknown parentage and where do you fit in the world? And if you find you fit in this place, does it change your chances? What history can you come from? Is, is something that is motivating earlier on. But I think that the characters double down on that. That lottery sense is something that each one of them uh, has a, a grift on in some sense, a, a hustle, an angle, a way that they have to play it. They're all gamblers. Uh, Livia is a gambler in the way that she does things. They're very different kinds of gamblers, but they're all gamblers. And I think that's a very American trait, which is there's, you know, we are by nature problematically so as well people of personal philosophy if you stop on a street corner to any homeless or not you know talk to them for a few minutes or somebody behind a convenience store counter they're going to give you their philosophy on life in like two minutes they're going to hit too and it's going to be about the haves and have nots and how you work in between and 
so that sense of everybody having an angle to get by and what it looks like um, is an aspect of lottery. When I drove cab, I drove night cab, what, I, what struck me was that every cabbie had a game on the night and they all swore by their rules, um, which was, you know, I only run short runs in town, or I only do the perimeters, or I only do airports at this. And they all had their philosophy on like how people moved and what they did. And they all, you know, it wasn't that any one of them turned out to be right. It was more about feeling a sense of control over what is a lottery. I always like to think that fiction writers tell a much greater truth than nonfiction writers. Um, and the truth that you and other American novelists, I think, are telling is, is a shocking story of the profound chasm. I don't know if, I mean, all chasms are profound, of this, this shocking <laughs> chasm between the story America tells itself and the reality of American life in the early part of the 21st century. Can America accept this story without going insane? I think that America's going insane by not accepting this story. Um, I think America's going insane right now. I think that the question I hear you asking is about can American exceptionalism or can the American myth accept this story without tearing itself apart? And that remains to be seen. I think that a lot of the madness that's going on and the vehemence around it is a fight for myth. It's a fight to not tell yourself a certain kind of story. And the question of who owns the story, um, you know, you have these different factions who will say, this is the story. And then the opposing faction, no, this is the story. And, and I don't know yet how we get to all of this is the story. Um, because both are true. Uh, there is an incredible lottery, deep systemic structural injustices. There are great, great failures um, and a lot of predetermination that Americans don't want to accept in terms of economic chances and possibilities. But there is also, I mean, I lived in Europe for a period of time and there's also a wildness. You can get, it's a country you can still get lost in um, for better or for worse, it creates a whole bunch of subcultures and, and things that can be productive or deadly. But the, it is still has a wilder sense than, um, you know, there is a way to go off grid here. There is a way to reinvent. And that reinvention is something I'm interested in, but find extremely dangerous. And I think the characters are sort of struggling with that and, and wanting to pull away from their own myths as well. Well, that's been the story of your life, hasn't it, in terms of reinvention? You've done so many different things. The, presumably everything you do, whether it's, you know, union organizer or professional musician or writer, you're continually reinventing yourself. And perhaps fiction then becomes an essential tool for that. Yeah, I think the reason I'm drawn to fiction, because I've also written nonfiction, and uh, the reason I love fiction so much is, as you said before, the attempt and ability to tell greater truths. Uh, I also really want to be able to depict the kinds of people I've met and the kinds of stories that I have walked through at different times. In nonfiction, there's a there's a way in which nonfiction has to be pinned to a straighter viewpoint, uh, point of view in carrying through at times and, and is very formulated 
compared to the way fiction can move. And so I appreciate that. The reinvention of self is not something that I think of as reinvention as much as a constant trying to get to the heart of something. Uh, I've worked the jobs I've worked, not for the experience, not for material, but for money. I've worked them because they were the jobs available at different times. Um, but also because there were certain things that I did not consider to be something I wanted to participate in or do, you know, that I may, I would have had the ability to go forward in potentially, whereas some of my characters wouldn't. Funny thing about Trump, of course, is that his most radical or shocking argument, I think, is that America is not exceptional. Many people on the left seem to share that. Uh, do you find that chilling, that, that, that this idea of American exceptionalism is perhaps the, the greatest casualty of what's happening in America today? Or perhaps you don't accept the idea that America isn't exceptional? No, I, I, it's more that I find exceptionalism to be an unending problem uh, in terms of my own interaction with it even. Uh, I am deeply, deeply convinced that, you know, we are not exceptional as humans and nations upon the planet. I am also attached to the idea that, and maybe this is the artist in me more than the political person in me, that we should have the belief that we can create something new, that we aren't held back as a world by this idea that because it has never been done, it never can be done. And so I, I understand the uh, left critique and I, you know, in political terms, that's where I'm at. And, and yet there's this other part that wants to say there can be something exceptional. What is it? Uh, and, and to try to wrestle with that, which, you know, is something that I, I can't ever quite settle with. Yeah, and I think a lot of that unsettling quality comes out in this book, The Great Offshore Grounds. It's really a, an exceptionally interesting and passionate read, and I think it, it's, a, it's a wonderful mirror into, into you as a person and as a writer. Uh, Vanessa, you're in, in, um, in, in Portland now, uh, like everybody, stuck inside. Yes. Um, as I said, everyone should read your book, the new book, the new novel, The, the Great Offshore Grounds. But Thank what you. else should people be reading, particularly if they want to grasp this, this elusive truth, this dangerous truth about life in early 21st century America? Well, I really think that people should read Jane McAlevey's work. Uh, it is nonfiction, um, but it talks a lot about labor. And in it, she talks a lot about what fight means and, and what it really means to challenge someone and what you have to believe about the agency of working class people to do it. She draws a really strong distinction between mobilizing and organizing and also between advocacy and actually building power. Um, and she does it very eloquently. She, I would recommend No Shortcuts and I would recommend her new book on, uh, on a collective bargain. Both of those are excellent. And um, in terms of literature, uh, I really, really love Northernmost by Peter Guy. It is the exact opposite of this novel in some ways, but it has some of the same concerns of national identity and in personal identity and a sense of place, although it's much more fixed. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. 
Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.